Chapter Eleven of the Iron Heel by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Matt Saw. The Great Adventure. Mr. Wickson did not send for father. They met by chance on the ferry boat to San Francisco, so that the warning he gave father was not premeditated. Had they not met accidentally, there would not have been any warning. Not that the outcome would have been different, however. Father came of stout old Mayflower stock, and the blood was imperative in him. Note. The Mayflower. One of the first ships that carried colonies to America after the discovery of the New World. Descendants of these original colonists were for a while inordinately proud of their genealogy, but in time the blood became so widely diffused that it ran in the veins practically of all Americans. Ernest was right, he told me, as soon as he had returned home. Ernest is a very remarkable young man, and I'd rather see you his wife than the wife of Rockefeller himself or the King of England. What's the matter? I asked in alarm. The oligarchy is about to tread upon our faces, yours and mine. Wixon as much as told me so. He was very kind, for an oligarch. He offered to reinstate me in the university. What do you think of that? He, Wixon, a sordid money-grabber, has the power to determine whether I shall or shall not teach in the university of the state. But he offered me even better than that, offered to make me president of some great college of physical sciences that is being planned. The oligarchy must get rid of its surplus somehow, you see. Do you remember what I told that socialist lover of your daughters? He said. I told him that we would walk upon the faces of the working class, and so we shall. As for you, I have for you a deep respect as a scientist. But if you throw your fortunes in with the working class, well, watch out for your face, that is all. And then he turned and left me. It means we'll have to marry earlier than you planned, was Ernest's comment when we told him. I could not follow his reasoning, but I was soon to learn it. It was at this time that the quarterly dividend of the Sierra Mills was paid, or rather should have been paid, for father did not receive his. After waiting several days, father wrote to the secretary, Promptly came the reply that there was no record on the books of father's owning any stock, and a polite request for more explicit information. "'I'll make it explicit enough. Confound him!' father declared, and departed for the bank to get the stock in question from his safe deposit box. "'Ernest is a very remarkable man,' he said when he got back, and while I was helping him off with his overcoat. "'I repeat, my daughter, that young man of yours is a very remarkable young man.' I had learned— whenever he praised Ernest in such fashion, to expect disaster. "'They have already walked upon my face,' father explained. "'There was no stock. The box was empty. You and Ernest will have to get married pretty quickly.' Father insisted on laboratory methods. He brought the Sierra Mills into court, but he could not bring the books of the Sierra Mills into court. He did not control the courts, and the Sierra Mills did. That explained it all. He was thoroughly beaten by the law, and the barefaced robbery held good. It is almost laughable now, when I look back on it, the way father was beaten. He met Wixon accidentally on the street in San Francisco, and he told Wixon that he was a damned scoundrel, and then father was arrested for attempted assault, fined in the police court, and bound over to keep the peace. It was all so ridiculous that when he got home he had to laugh himself. But what a furor was raised in the local papers. 
There was grave talk about the bacillus of violence that infected all men who embraced socialism, and father, with his long and peaceful life, was instanced as a shining example of how the bacillus of violence worked. Also, it was asserted by more than one paper that father's mind had weakened under the strain of scientific study, and confinement in a state asylum for the insane was suggested. Nor was this merely talk. It was an imminent peril. The father was wise enough to see it. He had the bishop's experience to lessen from, and he lessened well. He kept quiet, no matter what injustice was perpetrated on him, and really, I think, surprised his enemies. There was the matter of the house, our home. A mortgage was foreclosed on it, and we had to give up possession. Of course, there wasn't any mortgage, and never had been any mortgage. The ground had been bought outright, and the house had been paid for when it was built, and house and lot had always been free and unencumbered. Nevertheless, there was the mortgage, properly and legally drawn up and signed, with a record of the payments of interest through a number of years. Father made no outcry. As he had been robbed of his money, so was he now robbed of his home. And he had no recourse. The machinery of society was in the hands of those who were bent on breaking him. He was a philosopher at heart, and he was no longer even angry. I am doomed to be broken, he said to me. But that is no reason that I should not try to be shattered as little as possible. These old bones of mine are fragile, and I've learned my lesson. God knows I don't want to spend my last days in an insane asylum. Which reminds me of Bishop Morehouse, whom I have neglected for many pages. But first let me tell of my marriage. In the play of events my marriage sinks into insignificance, I know, so I shall barely mention it. Now we shall become real proletarians, father said when we were driven from our home. I have often envied that young man of yours for his actual knowledge of the proletariat. Now I shall see and learn for myself. Father must have had strong in him the blood of adventure. He looked upon our catastrophe in the light of an adventure. No anger nor bitterness possessed him. He was too philosophic and simple to be vindictive, and he lived too much in the world of mind to miss the creature comforts we were giving up. So it was when we moved to San Francisco into four wretched rooms in the slum south of Market Street, that he embarked upon the adventure with the joy and enthusiasm of a child, combined with the clear sight and mental grasp of an extraordinary intellect. He really never crystallized mentally. He had no false sense of values. Conventional or habitual values meant nothing to him. The only values he recognized were mathematical and scientific facts. My father was a great man. He had the mind and the soul that only great men have. In ways he was even greater than Ernest than whom I have known none greater. Even I found some relief in our change of living. If nothing else, I was escaping from the organized ostracism that had been our increasing portion in the university town ever since the enmity of the nascent oligarchy had been incurred. And the change was to me likewise adventure, and the greatest of all, for it was love adventure. The change in our fortunes had hastened my marriage, and it was as a wife that I came to live in the four rooms on Pell Street in the San Francisco slum. And this out of all remains... I made Ernest happy. I came into his stormy life, not as a new perturbing force, but as one that made toward peace and repose. I gave him rest. It was the guerdon of my love for him. It was the one infallible token that I had not failed. To bring forgetfulness, or the light of gladness, into those poor tired eyes of his, what greater joy could have blessed me than that? Those dear tired eyes... He toiled as few men ever toiled, and all his lifetime he toiled for others. That was the measure of his manhood, 
He was a humanist and a lover. And he, with his incarnate spirit of battle, his gladiator body, and his eagle spirit, he was as gentle and tender to me as a poet. He was a poet, a singer in deeds, and all his life he sang the song of man. And he did it out of sheer love of man, and for man he gave his life, and was crucified. And all this he did, with no hope of future reward. In his conception of things there was no future life. He, who fairly burnt with immortality, denied himself immortality. Such was the paradox of him. He, so warm in spirit, was dominated by that cold and forbidding philosophy, materialistic monism. I used to refute him by telling him that I measured his immortality by the wings of his soul, and that I should have to live endless eons in order to achieve the full measurement. Whereat he would laugh, and his arms would leap out to me, and he would call me his sweet metaphysician. And the tiredness would pass out of his eyes, and into them would flood the happy love-light that was in itself a new and sufficient advertisement of his immortality. Also, he used to call me his dualist, and he would explain how Kant, by means of pure reason, had abolished reason in order to worship God, and he drew the parallel, and included me guilty of a similar act. And when I pleaded guilty, but defended the act as highly rational, he but pressed me closer, and laughed as only one of God's own lovers could laugh. I was wont to deny that heredity and environment could explain his own originality and genius, any more than could the cold, groping finger of science catch and analyze and classify that elusive essence that lurked in the constitution of life itself. I held that space was an apparition of God, and that soul was a projection of the character of God, and when he called me his sweet metaphysician, I called him my immortal materialist. And so we loved, and were happy. And I forgave him his materialism, because of his tremendous work in the world, performed without thought of soul gain thereby. And because of his so exceeding modesty of spirit that prevented him from having pride and regal consciousness of himself and his soul. But he had pride. How could he have been an eagle, and not have pride? His contention was that it was finer for a finite mortal speck of life to feel godlike than for a god to feel godlike. And so it was that he exalted what he deemed his mortality. He was fond of quoting a fragment from a certain poem. He had never seen the whole poem, and he had tried vainly to learn its authorship. I here give the fragment, not alone because he loved it, but because it epitomized the paradox that he was in the spirit of him, and his conception of his spirit. For how can a man, with thrilling, and burning, and exaltation, recite the following, and still be mere mortal earth, a bit of fugitive force, an evanescent form. Here it is. Joy upon joy, and gain upon gain, are the destined rites of my birth, and I shout the praise of my endless days to the echoing edge of the earth. Though I suffer all deaths that a man can die to the uttermost end of time, I have deep-drained this, my cup of bliss, in every age and clime. The froth of pride, the tang of power, the sweet of womanhood. I drain the lees upon my knees, for, oh, the draught is good. I drink to life, I drink to death, and smack my lips with song. For when I die, another I shall pass the cup along. The man you drove from Eden's grove was I, my lord, was I, and I shall be there when the earth and the air are rent from sea to sky. 
For it is my world, my gorgeous world, the world of my dearest woes, from the first faint cry of the newborn to the rack of the woman's throes. Packed with the pulse of an unborn race, torn with a world's desire, the surging flood of my wild young blood would quench the judgment fire. I am man, 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 from the tingling flesh to the dust of my earthly goal, from the nestling gloom of the pregnant womb to the sheen of my naked soul, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, the whole world leaps to my will, and the unslaked thirst of an Eden cursed shall harrow the earth for its fill. Almighty God, when I drain life's glass of all its rainbow gleams, the hapless plight of eternal night shall be none too long for my dreams. The man you drove from Eden's grove was I, my Lord, was I. And I shall be there when the earth and the air are rent from sea to sky, for it is my world, my gorgeous world, the world of my dear delight. From the brightest gleam of the arctic stream to the dusk of my own love night. Ernest always overworked. His wonderful constitution kept him up, but even that constitution could not keep the tired look out of his eyes, his dear tired eyes. He never slept more than four and one-half hours a night, yet he never found time to do all the work he wanted to do. He never ceased from his activities as a propagandist, and was always scheduled long in advance for lectures to working men's organizations. Then there was the campaign. He did a man's full work in that alone. With the suppression of the socialist publishing houses, his meager royalties ceased, and he was hard put to make a living, for he had to make a living in addition to all his other labor. He did a great deal of translating for the magazines on scientific and philosophic subjects, and coming home late at night, worn out from the strain of the campaign, he would plunge into his translating and toil on well into the morning hours. And in addition to everything, there was his studying. To the day of his death, he kept up his studies, and he studied prodigiously. And yet he found time in which to love me and make me happy. But this was accomplished only through my merging my life completely into his. I learned shorthand and typewriting and became his secretary. He insisted that I succeeded in cutting his work in half, and so it was that I schooled myself to understand his work. Our interests became mutual, and we worked together and played together. And then there were our sweet, stolen moments in the midst of our work, just a word, or caress, or flash of love-light, and our moments were sweeter for being stolen, for we lived on the heights, where the air was keen and sparkling, where the toil was for humanity and where sordidness and selfishness never entered. We loved love, and our love was never smirched by anything less than the best, and this out of all remains. I did not fail. I gave him rest. He who worked so hard for others, my dear, tired-eyed mortalist. End of chapter 11 Recording by Matt Saw, Montreal Matsor.org